Father, thank you that you speak uh, the scriptures to us. Uh, please do help us to see what is. Uh, please do work in us that we'd live and feel and think in ways that fit with what you revealed to us. Father, please do work it. In Jesus, amen. Paul is a model of Christian love. I watched most of season one of MasterChef, whatever year that was, uh, but I don't remember seeing much of it uh, since then. It's fun to see chefs uh, cook up their signature dishes and then watch a bunch of skilled amateurs have a crack. The drama and the repetition before and after the ad break, so that I could leave. Hessen Blumenthal has got to be one of the world's most capable chefs. He taught the grand finale dish in 2018. Imagine hearing Heston say it took him 15 years to perfect the technique and and another nine months to develop an incredible dessert. Imagine seeing a cushion hovering, floating in midair with the dessert sitting on that hovering cushion. Imagine watching Heston's flawless technique, uh, starting with 84 ingredients, including liquid nitrogen, pistachio milk, and trehalose. Does anyone know what trehalose? I know who knows what trehalose is. Imagine the 85 steps with those 84 ingredients to make 14 different things that still need another 12 steps to get things ready to serve, and then two more steps to actually serve them. There's so much that could go wrong in that 98-step process. But I imagine Heston made it look effortless. Each time he makes it, just like the last time he made it. Perfect. Imagine you've watched him and now it's your turn. How do you feel? Nervous? Excited? Intimidated, terrified that you'll mess up. Imagine you're not a chef trying to copy his perfect technique. Instead of that, imagine you're another bag of ingredients he's going to start work on. A little bit more confident it's going to work out well. Feeling a bit confident it'll work out okay. Now, whether you're curious and not yet committed, or whether you're committed but not yet perfect, which picture fits your progress better? Being a somewhat intimidated master chef contestant, or being a bag of ingredients that the master master chef is about to, or in the process of working on? I reckon hearing Paul talk about his, himself in this letter is a bit like seeing an incredible dessert that's almost finished, well on its way towards completion. We could feel intimidated because we know it's not us. Why on earth are any sojourners going to love like Paul loves? Well, Paul loved like that because God worked in him. 
Uh, Think back to where it began for Paul, who used to be known as Saul. Think about how much he changed. Uh, 20 years before he wrote this letter, actually less than 20 years before he wrote this letter, Paul hated the gospel. He watched Stephen brutally stoned to death for proclaiming Jesus. And his first thought was, we need more of that. At the beginning of Acts chapter 8, he makes it his mission to track down Christian men and women in Jerusalem and put them in prison. Uh, Chapter 9 begins with Saul, Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Uh, He gets permission to go to Damascus to search for Christian men and women to bring them back bound to Jerusalem. You know what he wanted to bring them back bound for? Remember that bit about breathing out threats and murder? That's where he began. Jump forward 20 years later nearly. And Paul looks very different. He's changed. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12, he says, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another, fellow Christians, and for all, as we do for you. God our Father and Jesus our Lord have been working on him by their spirit through their word. And now instead of opposing Christ's people... Paul abounds and overflows in love for Christ's people. Most of chapters 2 and 3 are about that. We hear about Paul in Thessalonica and then Paul since he was forced to leave. But it's all about how he loved them. He's going to share that prayer that I just put a little bit, um, that that they'd love one another and everyone else just like he loves them, verse 12. So, as I go through, listen out for how he describes his love for them. Next week, we'll go back to the Paul in Thessalonica bit. Uh, He went to Thessalonica because there were no Christians there. He wanted to see men, women, and children turn in trust and begin to trust Jesus. He knew that preaching Christ would cost him, but he preached anyway. He says he loved them like a breastfeeding mother loves her own baby. He loved them like a father who trains his children to set them up for the future. And he was there when the persecution started. It looks like the persecutors wanted Paul dead because the Thessalonians sent him away suddenly at night. He was forced to leave. From chapter 2, verse 17, to nearly the end of chapter 3, Paul talks about what he has done since he was forced to leave. This is our focus today. Uh, we see that he was passionately, de- he passionately devoted himself to making sh- sure God's word was prayerfully spoken to the Thessalonian believers. This section shows us his love for believers. Remember, he is a model. So verse 17 describes the moment of separation. He was torn away from them. The word is, is like he's orphaned. He felt like a parent being dragged away, his arms stretched out, trying to get back to his children. And he keeps trying to get back to them. He is far from them, but his heart is with them. 
He says he's endeavored eagerly with great desire to get back to them. But he couldn't. Because verse 18, Satan hindered him, them. What well, doesn't say is high. What was it? Sickness? Was it ongoing threats to his life? Was it something else? Whatever stopped him, Paul saw Satan behind it. He saw the spiritual battle and the spiritual threat. Satan aimed to stop him getting back to proclaim the gospel because Satan wanted them to walk away from Jesus. That's what Satan wanted. Verse 19, 20, help us see what Paul wanted. This is why Paul longed to get back to them. It's more than mateship or or more than concern for their physical well-being. They are or, or will be his, verse 19, hope and joy and crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming. He looks beyond his earthly sojourn to the day when the Lord Jesus returns to judge and deliver. Then they will be people he hoped and confidently expected to see. People he delights in and has joy and rejoices to see around the throne. People who demonstrated that his, who, people who demonstrate that his life was not wasted, that he did not run or labor in vain, they'll be his crown of boasting. He brings that eternal perspective back into his everyday experience. He looks forward to joy he'll feel when he sees them then. He looks forward to the joy he'll feel when he sees men and women and children he spoke the gospel to in this life as they stand together forgiven in Christ and the next. But it's not just future joy. Verse 20. You are our glory and joy. Paul already looks at them and delights to speak in glowing terms of them. He delights to see how their progress and growth as Christian people. He longs for the deep joy of standing with them forgiven on the last day. But he's worried they won't make it. He's worried they won't make it. Look at the end of verse 5. He's worried his labor will be in vain. It will be all for nothing. How could it prove pointless? Well, it will only be empty if they don't stand forgiven in Christ at the end. It will only be empty if they stand condemned. That's what he's concerned about. He's concerned that in the daily grind of opposition, they'll walk away from the only Savior. You can presume we'll stay Christian. (laughs) Not you, not me. If you have a friend who is drifting away from Jesus, treat them like that's what they're doing. Drifting away from the only Savior. It's not safe. There is one Savior who delivers from the coming wrath. 
Paul knew the Christians in Thessalonica were under pressure to walk away from Jesus. He longed to go to them to be of help, but he couldn't. If he could go get to them, he would do something that would make a difference. What could he have done? Well, he could speak God's gospel. But he couldn't go back, so he did what he could. Chapter two, 3, verses two, 1 and 2. Chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Paul stayed in Athens and he sent Timothy back to them, who he describes as a brother in Christ, God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. So you see why he sent Timothy back? It was to speak God's word to them. It was, end of verse 2, to establish and exhort them in their faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. Paul sent Timothy so they'd stand firm, make progress, not give it all away in the face of persecution. Timothy was the perfect person to send because Timothy could do what Paul would have done if Paul could have gone. Timothy Timothy is exactly what they needed in the face of trials and temptations. Sorry, trials and temptations. Timothy can do the thing that makes a difference. He can speak God's word to them. Now, I can think of this as Paul, this, of Paul sending Timothy as a good tactical decision. And kind of responding to circumstances as they change. It wasn't possible for him to go back, so he adjusted his plan and sent Timothy to do what he would have done if he could have gone. It's a good tactical decision, but it's very clear it wasn't a cold, calculated tactical decision. His wise decision was driven by his passionate desire. He longed for them to hear God's word because he knew God's word would make the difference. That's what drove him to be left alone rather than be with his co-worker. The same love and passion surfaces in verses 6 to 10. Paul rejoices when he hears they are standing firm, they're making progress and not giving it all away in the face of persecution. Paul's love and affection, they jump off the page. Uh, verse 6. Now that Timothy has come to us from you, he has brought us good news. <laughs> He's gospeled us of your faith and love. And he's reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for for your sake before our God. Here, he's excited. He's excited, verse 8, because they're still going as Christians. They're still trusting the Lord Jesus. They're still people who love. Paul draws strength uh, from knowing that they still trust Jesus. It is life itself to know that his converts are standing firm as Christians. So he's glad because he cares. 
He's glad because he loves them deeply. He's glad because his passionate desire is to see the Thessalonians stand firm to the end. It felt strange to hear Paul talking about trying to boasting at the end of chapter 2. It's clear here he's not taking credit for what God does. Paul and Timothy are both fellow workers with God in the gospel of the Lord Jesus. But it is God who changes people as his word is spoken. Paul knows the result of his, of his work without God's work. He sees it in the response of those who reject the gospel. Paul will boast, but he will boast with full awareness that God saves, God keeps, God matures his people. In fact, that part of that full awareness is he realizes that everything from his own salvation and his passionate desire to see the Thessalonians stand firm to the Thessalonians' conversion and the steadfastness, the steadfast progress, Paul already says, all of that, God's work in him, God's work in them, all of it is God's work. Paul is passionate for and feels joy about God's work in them because of God's work in him. So verse 9 overflows with thanks to God for the Thessalonians who are standing firm and that he experiences so much delight when he hears they are standing firm. Both the work in them and his delight. Well, both are God's work. But Paul is very aware that they're not yet home. Verse 10, he's still praying most earnestly, night and day, that he'll get to see them face to face and supply what is lacking in their faith. Now, in many ways, these men, uh, women, and children in Thessalonica were model believers. Read chapter 1 again, you'll see that. So, what's lacking? Well, there are still years ahead of them. They still have room to grow in godliness and holiness. They still have room to grow in love. They will continue to be persecuted. They have not yet stood firm to the end. Paul prays passionately that he'll get to be part of their progress and perseverance. It's an enormous transformation when you think back to Paul in Acts. (laughs) Think back to the days when Paul was a murderous persecutor. (laughs) Look at him now. Look at what God did in him. It's a bit like an incredible desert towards getting towards completion. Turning out well. And he wants to see the Lord do the same work in you. Verse 11, Paul knows his circumstances are influenced by Satan, but they're under the control of God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 12, he calls on our Lord Jesus to work in his people, to change their hearts. 
He says, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. He wants to see Jesus work in them. So they love one another and everyone else in the same way he has loved them. How has he loved? Well, we'll circle back to how he loved them when they were lost without Christ next week. Spoiler, he brought the God's gospel to them. This week we're focused on how he loved them when they believed. He devoted himself to prayerfully speaking God's word to them. And when he couldn't do it himself, he said he sent someone else who could. And he prayed. And he rejoiced in their progress. And he delighted as they stood firm in hard circumstances. And he committed himself to, to prayerfully speaking God's word when God gave him another opportunity. That's the sort of love for one another he wants to see increasing and abounding in them. The sort of love for one another God wants to cause to increase and abound in us. Verse 13 tells us what will happen as the Lord works that love. The outcome of them increasing and abounding in love is that, verse 13, the Lord Jesus will establish their hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Just like when Paul sent Timothy to establish and exhort them, their love for one another contributes to establishing one another's hearts. But ultimately, it is Jesus who does the work. The love Paul's talking about is gospel-hearted. It's prayerfully speaking God's word, love. And the Lord works it by his spirit through his word. So how on earth are any sojourners going to love like Paul loved the Thessalonians? How on earth are any sojourners going to make deep and real progress in godliness and holiness? How on earth are any sojourners going to stand firm when opposition and temptation increases? Well, there's nothing better you could want for any believer than for God to work love and godliness and holiness and steadfastness in them. God tuned Paul's heart to that reality. He knew there was nothing better for any believer than for God to work love, godliness, holiness and steadfastness in them. That's why he's so very eager to see them abound in love and grow in godliness and holiness and stand firm to the ends. It will only happen in them as God does it. God saves people. God prepares good works for us to walk in. God continues the good work that he has begun in us. God will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. And at the same time, God is pleased to work through our prayers. God has chosen to work through his word spoken. God tuned Paul's head, heart, and life to those realities. So when Paul could be with them, he prayerfully spoke God's word. Uh, When he couldn't be with them, he prayed. 
And he sent someone who could speak God's word to them. He prayed urgently and persistently about the things that matter most. And when he heard news about brothers and sisters under pressure and standing firm in Jesus, he rejoiced. He rejoiced in God who did it. You see the realities? This is what's best, and God does it. He does it as his people prayerfully speak his word. We see and can rejoice in his work when we see the faces of brothers and sisters who are standing firm under pressure. It's one of the bittersweet things about being church. We see one another struggle and we can rejoice in the Lord who enables us to continue with Jesus as we struggle. The pressures we face are are very different to the persecutions Paul and the Thessalonians faced. Uh, We and our Christian friends uh, feel the pressure of suffering and disappointment, loneliness and isolation. Uh, Seeing hypocrisy uh, in church and Christian institutions. Being shamed by friends for holding Bible values. Feeling the draw of our own sinful desires. The pressures we face are different, but it can be hard to keep going at all, let alone thrive like Paul let alone abounding and overflowing in gospel-hearted love like Paul. We need one another's love. The love that prayerfully speaks God's word, urgently, persistently, as if all this is true, including the fact that God does the work. As if it is true because we're deeply convinced it is, And our thoughts are shaping our conscience, will, passions, and lives. How on earth are any sojourners going to love like Paul loves? How can you grow so that you love like Paul loved? Well, first up, remember this. God does it. When it comes to our growth in godliness and holiness and love and service, when it comes to our steadfastness, we are more like ingredients than budding master chefs. God's not saying, here you go, have a crack. He is the master, master chef. When we fail wake, when we fail like progress is impossible, it's because it is for us, not him. So lean in to his work. Pray a wake prayer to an almighty father. Meet with us as uh, brothers and sisters he has given you to prayerfully speak God's word to you. Soak 
So can God's word. How do we grow one another so that we love like Paul loves? Not as budding master chefs, but as humbly dependent co-workers with God who does the work as we prayerfully speak his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the ways we see you have been at work among us. We thank you for brothers and sisters who over months and years and decades have held firmly to Jesus or held weakly to Jesus but been held firmly by Jesus. We do give you glory. We give glory to your Son who is powerful to save. And not just to save, but to work what he worked in Paul. Taking someone with murderous hatred and making him a life-risking gospel proclaimer. Driven by love for you and love for the people to whom he spoke. Believers and unbelievers. We know you can do it. We see that you've worked it in him as we read the scriptures. We've seen you do the same sort of work in brothers and sisters through the generations. Father, please do work it more and more in us. Please make us urgent and persistent in our prayers for one another, in our pleading that you do this work in us ourselves. And Father, please use us to bless one another as we prayerfully speak your word. In the Lord Jesus, amen.